0: Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, episode number 86, Marcello DiBello, Profile Evidence, Fairness, and the Risks of Mistaken Conviction. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Marcello DiBello. Marcello is Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Lehman College at the City University of New York. Marcello's scholarship is in the area of the philosophy of evidence and proof with frequent links to probabilistic and statistical inference. He teaches courses on a wide variety of subjects, including the philosophy of law, introduction to logic, and probability and the law. Our podcast today features Marcello's new article, Profile Evidence, Fairness, and the Risks of Mistaken Conviction, which was forthcoming in the journal Ethics and was co-authored with Colin O'Neill. In it, Marcello takes on a time-honored puzzle in evidence and criminal procedure. Why is the legal system often averse to the use of profile evidence? After all, from a probabilistic viewpoint, profile evidence seems perfectly justified. Members of certain groups are more likely to commit certain acts, and therefore, when trying to prove a case, the fact that the defendant belongs to a high-risk group should be relevant. And what makes belonging to one kind of group say, based on race or socioeconomic class or education level, different from belonging to other groups, say, someone with a previous history of violence. In any event, profile evidence generates some nagging sense of worry, a sense that the evidence is unfair in some way. Over the years, a number of scholars have offered explanations. To these voices, Marcello adds another. He argues that our discomfort with profile evidence is related to a special kind of equal protection.
1: Marcello explains.
0: Marcello, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome.
1: Thank you very much for having me, Ed.
0: Your paper tackles a long-standing issue, which is profiling and profile evidence. To start us off, can you just tell us how you define profile evidence and perhaps to be more concrete give us an example or two of profile evidence.
1: So I would define profile evidence as evidence that expresses a statistical correlation between fitting a certain profile or features and committing a certain type of crime. And the statistical correlation should be robust in some sense and not accidental. In the paper, I use the example of bad environment. So bad environment is profile evidence in which if you grew up in a bad environment, you had not a very good education, or you are unemployed, or you are addicted to drugs, so you satisfy this combination of, of features, then there exists a correlation between this and a higher propensity towards committing acts of violence.
0: Okay, so as you acknowledge in your paper, profile evidence is probative you know, assuming that it is empirically grounded in some way, that people with certain characteristics are statistically more likely to commit certain crimes or do certain acts. But I think it's fair to say that many of us view this kind of evidence to be unfair or somehow tainted, and you offer a new spin on why that is, but others have also done that. What are some of the conventional explanations for our distaste of profile evidence? And why in your mind are some of these explanations unsatisfactory or don't actually tell us the reason?
1: So I think there are a couple of promising explanations in the literature for why profile evidence is problematic. So one explanation is based on this idea of autonomy. So it seems that when you use profile evidence against a defendant, and and we're talking about here in a criminal trial, you are relying on some form of generalization. And then you are drawing an inference from the fact that the defendant fits the generalization to individual characteristics or a behavior that is the behavior of the individual. So you're going from the general to the specific. And in doing so, a number of scholars say that you're failing to consider the individuality of the defendant. You are failing to give the defendant the benefit of the doubt because the defendant can exercise free will, is an autonomous agent, so it doesn't need to follow necessarily the generalization in which it falls in. Someone who grew up in a bad environment might not end up committing acts of violence because can exercise his own free will. So that's one account. And The reason why I think it's problematic is because of the way the question is phrased in the paper. So in the paper, the question is, is profile evidence admissible? Should it be admissible? And so the thought here is that we're using profile evidence together with other forms of types of evidence. So we're not just drawing an inference from a generalization to the behavior of an individual on the basis of profile evidence alone, but we're using it together with other evidence. And to the extent that you consider as much evidence as you can reasonably obtain profile evidence and other, maybe more specific evidence, I don't think you are undermining the individuality of the defendant because you're giving the defendant as much room to bring in any further evidence or any exculpatory evidence as possible. So that's one account that I think is problematic. The other account that the paper talks about is based on this idea of deterrence. What seems to be peculiar of profile evidence is that whether or not you commit the crime, whether or not you commit the act of violence, Uh, that has to do with the crime you're charged with, profile evidence can be used against you no matter what. Because it consists of some form of statistical correlation that is available as a matter of scientific research, say, so it's available no matter what, and it can be used against you no matter what, no matter whether you do the crime or not. So this means that if you were to be a potential criminal deliberating whether you want to commit a crime or not, and you were then faced with the question, well, would profile evidence be used against me if I commit the crime or not? Well, you would realize that profile evidence would be used against you no matter what. So the use of profile evidence doesn't give you any incentive not to commit the crime. And so it seems to undermine, using profile evidence seems to undermine the deterrence function of the criminal trial to some extent. So that's another view. And why is this view problematic, you ask? Well, I think it's problematic for a number of reasons, but maybe one reason is, again, has to do with the way the question in the paper is phrased. That is, it does seem that when we use profile evidence against a defendant, we are wronging the defendant in some sense. Uh, the defendant should be able to voice a complaint against using that profile evidence uh, for incriminating purposes. And the deterrence account that I just described doesn't seem to capture this sorts of moral complaint. Uh, the deterrence account shows that if we use profile evidence the criminal justice system might not promote its deterrent function as well as it should, but the deterrence accounts doesn't seem to, to capture the idea that the defendant would be wronged by using profile evidence. And insofar as we think that this is what's going on, partly with when we admit or we use profile evidence against defendant, then the deterrence account is not adequate.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting criticism there, which is that the core of the complaint, and I guess I had inadvertently phrased it the way that you wanted it at the beginning of the show, is that I said, it seems unfair. And this systemic problem of undermining deterrence generally, which may or may not be true, I think it's an empirical issue. There are questions about whether or not criminals even operate under those kinds of incentives but even assuming that that's true, that doesn't implicate the fairness concern to the individual defendant, that's actually just a systematic problem. That's right. So tell us about your take, which I find really interesting. What's your take on our aversion to profile evidence?
1: The take that the paper defends is based on this idea of fairness, and in particular, is based on the idea of how admitting profile evidence at trial would unevenly distribute the risk of mistaken convictions. Uh, let me unpack this a little bit. So profile evidence has the peculiarity that if you fit the profiling question, you can be incriminated by it. If you grew up in a bad environment, then I can use that profile evidence against you in a trial when you are accused of some violent crime. If you don't fit the profile, then I cannot use that evidence against you. So profile evidence divides the set of defendants into those who can be incriminated by that type of profile evidence we are considering and those who cannot. And one consequence of this is that if a defendant is facing trial, and the defendant fits the relevant profile, then profile evidence can be used against him. And that means that the body of incriminating evidence overall would be stronger against defendants who fit the profile. And in turn, that means that if the body of evidence is stronger, the probability of being convicted should also be higher assuming that there is a rational connection between the strength of the evidence presented against you and the probability that you will be convicted. So the conclusion is that a defendant who fits profile evidence compared to a defendant who does not, everything else being equal, is subject to a higher probability or a higher risk of conviction. And this is true, and this I think is the key final step, This is true also for innocent defendants, because as I said earlier, profile evidence can be used whether you're innocent or guilty, whether you're factually innocent or guilty. So using profile evidence at trial means that innocent defendants who fit profile evidence are subject to a higher risk of mistaken conviction compared to innocent defendants who don't fit profile evidence, other things being equal.
0: In a way, you break error rates into their constituent parts. So, the advocates for profiling, people who like profiling evidence, they focus on the true positive rate, or in turn, the false negative rate. And if you focus on the false negative rate, then you say, well, profiling helps us as a society get more convictions and we we lower the false negative rate by using profiles. You however are focusing on the false positive rate which is that it's unfair to subject innocent parties to different rates of false conviction. Is there a reason why we should focus on one type of error versus another? So I think you're expressing a preference for being concerned about that false positive rate or I guess the way that that false positive rate is distributed versus the false negative rate?
1: Yeah, so this is a very difficult question, and the paper doesn't fully address, I should say. But I think the paper is trying to capture this idea that there is an intuitive complaint against admitting profile evidence. And I think the fact that we are distributing false positive rate in a way that it affects certain groups rather than other is a way to capture that intuitive complaint. Now, then, if we consider the criminal justice system and we want to analyze it systematically, I think you're right that we need to consider false positive and false negative, and there might be some Weighing or trade-off that we need to consider between a false positive and false negatives. But even though that's true, and I think that's a very complex question which the paper does not address. Even though that's true, I think the complaint that defendants who are faced with profile evidence could voice would remain. They are still being treated unfairly for the reason that I explain, and that unfair treatment doesn't go away, even though perhaps all things considered at the systematic level of analysis of the criminal justice system, we might need to give up on treating them fairly and instead using profile evidence against them because the need of safety and security in society is so strong, then we we should set that concern aside.
0: Fair enough. I think that's right. That your paper is largely making a descriptive claim explaining why we have this discomfort with profile evidence and whether or not we want to trade these things off for societal reasons is another question. Here's another question that came to mind as I was reading your paper. How similar are you to Fred Schauer's thoughts on this subject? So. If I recollect correctly, in his book on profiles and stereotypes, he offers what I've always thought was a rather vivid example of the problem of profiling. And he used airport searches as an example. So he posits that if you subject a minority group to repeated inconveniences, so imagine that at an airport, certain groups are profiled and they are repeatedly searched much more thoroughly than other people at the airport, that in a sense, those members end up being disproportionately burdened with the costs of security. So all of us benefit from security, but only certain people, and in this case, I think his concern here is about innocence, certain innocents are overly burdened with the cost of security. And he then goes on to suggest that If everyone had to be subjected to these searches, then maybe society would find less inconvenient or less intrusive measures, maybe some kind of scanner as opposed to a pack-down. Does your theory cohere with Fred's, or are there important differences?
1: So this language of certain groups being disproportionately burdened by a certain practice, or by the use of certain evidence, or by the use of profiling in airport security controls. I think the language of disproportionately burdening certain groups is is a good way of capturing the intuitive idea that is behind the account that I'm defending. However, I think there are a number of important differences. So first... I think the most glaring difference is that, well, in the case of shower, he's using this idea in the case of airport searchers or profiling in pre-trial settings. And my concern is mostly the use of profile evidence in, in trial settings. And I think that there might be different kinds of arguments that you might make in one case or, or the other. For example, the, the sorts of trade-off that we were talking about earlier might be much more salient at the level of pretrial than at the level of trial. And so perhaps the disproportionately burdened argument might be weaker when applied in the case of pretrial proceedings or searches or profiling by the police than at the level of trial. A second difference is in the framing of the account. So, Shower and others seem to prefer this language of disproportionately burdening certain groups. I prefer to use the language of subjecting certain defendants who are innocent to a higher risk of uh, mistaken conviction or a higher risk, in the case of airport searches, of mistaken searches. Now, why the language of higher risk versus the language of disproportionate burden and i think that this is where a lot of the subtlety starts to appear because then we need to ask well what do we mean exactly by risk how should we understand risk and i think the language of disproportionate burdens leaves things a little undefined it seems that when we talk about disproportionate burdens maybe we're just talking about frequencies of some kind Uh, I'm not sure.
0: What about exculpatory profiles? Does your theory have anything to say about the use of profiles for exculpation as opposed to inculpation? And I suppose the thing that comes to my mind is that those profiles then don't affect the risk of false positives as much as perhaps they do false negatives.
1: Yes, you, you're right. And, and I think there is distinctive question that concerns exculpatory profile evidence. Now, I should say that admitting exculpatory profile evidence will diminish the risk of mistaking conviction for those who can benefit from the introduction of those exculpatory profile. And comparatively, that would mean that admitting exculpatory profile evidence will, at the end, create an inequality in the distribution of the risk of mistaking conviction because those who can take advantage of the exculpatory profile will be at the lower risk of mistaking conviction versus those who cannot take advantage of those exculpatory profile, everything else being equal. However, I think there is an intuition of some kind that introducing exculpatory profile evidence is less problematic than introducing incriminating profile evidence. And so I think it's important to account for why. And one thought might be that, and this is examined in the paper, one thought might be that there is a threshold that Defendants, innocent defend- and defendants in general, but innocent defendants in particular, should enjoy in terms of protection against mistaken conviction. And it might not be a fixed threshold. Perhaps this threshold is viable. We need to guarantee that the risk of mistaken conviction for defendants is as low as possible or as low as it is cost justified. And so admitting exculpatory profile evidence goes towards satisfying that goal, it goes towards lowering the risk of mistaking conviction for innocent defendants, whereas introducing incriminating profile evidence does not. So in the paper, there are two principles that work together. One is the principle of due protection, which is what I just mentioned, namely that innocent defendants should be guaranteed a risk of mistaken conviction that is as low as possible or as low as it is cost justified. And on top of that, there is the principle of an equal distribution of the risk of mistaken conviction. Now, one principle seems to be prior to the other. And so to the extent in which exculpatory profile evidence favors or promotes the principle of due protection. It gets this special treatment, whereas incriminating profile evidence doesn't favor the principle of due protection, and it doesn't favor that principle, and it violates the principle of equal protection, namely the principle that innocent defendants should be subject to the same risk of mistaken conviction. And in that sense, it is uh, peculiarly problematic and more problematic than exculpatory profile evidence.
0: Now I have probably a bit of an unfair question. I realize that you're a philosopher and that this is a philosophy paper, but lawyers, who I think comprise most of our audience, find the next question rather irresistible, which is, what are the policy implications for your theory? In other words, does your theory suggest that we should indeed ban the use of profile evidence, and if so, where? Or Do you remain agnostic on this and would really prefer to just point out descriptively why it is that we are uncomfortable with this kind of evidence?
1: Well, in terms of the policy implication, I mean, this is a good question, an important one. I think our criminal justice system already Bans the use of some forms of profile evidence. So if we think about character evidence, this is in general not admissible. There are various exceptions, etc. But in general, character evidence is not admissible. And character evidence is a form of profile evidence because it has to do with fitting a certain profile and being more likely to commit a crime on the basis of fitting that profile. So I think to the extent that we have already embedded in our criminal justice system this uh, resistance or prohibition against certain forms of profile evidence, what the paper does, I think, is to try to formulate an argument that is more coherent and more comprehensive. So I don't see any radical departure from what we have. There are, however, a number of people... And I think Mike Redmayne in the UK, I think, is probably one of the most, uh, the strongest proponent. There are a number of people who, are, who propose that we should, in fact, admit character evidence and other forms of profile evidence. And perhaps the, cont- the policy contribution of the paper is to resist these sorts of arguments.
0: Final question for you. What's next? What new projects in this sphere are you working on?
1: So the next project I'm working on has to do with algorithm and the fairness algorithm. So there is a huge debate now in the computer science literature, and it's taking up also in the law uh, literature and in law reviews, about algorithms that I use to assess the risk of recidivism pre-trial, and then these risk of recidivism I used to make the decision about pre-trial detention or release. And there is a huge debate about whether these algorithms disproportionately burden a certain population rather than others. And and what's interesting about this debate is that there are a number of impossibility theorems showing that given a certain assumptions, plausible assumption, this algorithm cannot be expected to equally allocate burdens to different populations because there are inequalities in the rate of criminality between these populations. So I'm, I'm trying to sort out this literature and using also some of the ideas from this paper to move forward the debate about algorithmic fairness in the computer science literature.
0: Well, Marcello, thanks for taking the time to talk about profile evidence and your new take on why it might be problematic. Great having you on the show.
1: Thank you very much, Ed.
0: Marcello has added an important explanation for our, at times, hard-to-explain aversion to profiling evidence. After all, if you think about it, profiling seems so natural and sensible. When you're at an airport being subjected to a random search, or worse yet, being held up in line watching an elderly woman being subjected to a random search, it seems like such an incredible waste of time. Yet, at least for some of us, it seems strikingly unfair to subject the same law-abiding person of Middle Eastern descent to repeated searches while everyone else goes on their merry way. This tension becomes all the more so at trial, and I think Marcello's paper very nicely articulates why we have this aversion. The impulse to profile is driven by our concern over efficiency and the need to catch the guilty. The impulse not to profile is driven by our concern over innocence. We're not worried about profiling the guilty. That's fine. What we're worried about is profiling the innocent. And to classify all innocents together and to demand that they receive an equal or relatively equal false positive rate seems like a basic value that we can all share. That leads me to an important point that Marcello and I didn't talk about during our interview, which is a key limitation to his principle of equal protection. Obviously, all evidence at trial increases the false positive rate for an innocent. If I, as an innocent, was present at a crime scene, then that fact makes it more likely that I will be wrongfully convicted than other innocents who are not at the crime scene. Presenting that evidence would then seem to violate Marcello's rule, but Marcello's principle of equal protection only applies to ex-ante attributes, which helps handle that overextension. What ultimately qualifies as ex-ante may be a bit of a fudge factor, but I think this ex-ante limitation can carry a lot of the burden. Note though that with this limitation, Marcello's principle remains attractively general. For example, we don't need to get into specific debates about which profiling categories might raise animus concerns and which do not. As Marcello suggested at the end of our interview, Profiling is a big deal. As our data collection and statistical methods become more sophisticated, deciding what kinds of profiling are legitimate and what kinds are not will only become more important. I look forward to Marcello's new work on algorithms and what new insights he finds in that context. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The associate producer is Alex Nunn, and the production editor is Grace DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Francesca Rutherford, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir, under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. Thanks also to the Faculty of Law at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, who is hosting me this semester. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join us again next time when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof.